Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Tides of History early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. It was early November in 1521. Steel gray clouds hung low in the sky, threatening rain or perhaps snow overnight. The buzz of the crowd filled the square, bouncing off the half-timbered houses and workshops that bordered the open space. Every day was a market day in Nuremberg, and stalls filled with merchants and peddlers of all stripes packed the cobbled ground of the square. Nuremberg was a prosperous city. Its well-heeled weavers and goldsmiths chatted about business and rubbed elbows with burgers' wives out buying household necessities. Landsknecht mercenaries with their battered swords and firearms and flashy, striped, much-patched clothing bumped up against tonsured Franciscan friars in austere robes. They stamped their feet against the chill and avoided the occasional ice-flecked puddle as they chatted, shouted, bought, and sold. The crowd clustered around a pair of stalls. Ink-stained hands raised books and pamphlets high for all to see. Martin Luther's works straight from Wittenberg, yelled one brandishing a thick sheaf of printed papers above his head. He's butchering Brother Martin's message, shouted the other printer in response. He can't even set the type properly. The two exchanged curses and venomous stares, but not enough to interrupt the flow of business. Coins changed hands with shocking speed. The large stack of pamphlets ran out in minutes, and plenty of books sold as well. A printer's apprentice brought out a freshly finished stack of new pamphlets, the ink still wet and smudging. One man, a portly burger, read a copy to a group of peasants in from the countryside to sell their produce. They couldn't read, but Luther's message still reached them. A cluster of Dominican and Augustinian friars, clad in their distinctive habits, shouted at a preacher hollering about the presence of Christ in the Eucharist during Mass. Pushed to the edge, one of the printers punched the other. The two men rolled into a brawl on the muddy, manure-stained cobbles, the ink on their clothes and hands mixing with blood, mud, and excrement. The conversation roiled around them, weavers and peasants and women of Nuremberg arguing and discussing and engaging deeply with new ideas about faith and the church. The Protestant Reformation was underway. Hi, everybody. From Wondery, welcome to another episode of Tides of History. I'm Patrick Weinman. Thanks for joining me. I've been thinking about counterfactuals a lot lately, about paths not taken, alternative ways things might have worked out had just one or two things in history gone a little bit differently. This is growing out of conversations I had here on Tides with Walter Scheidel and Mark Koyama. Both do a lot of the rigorous testing of counterfactuals that you see a lot in the social sciences. It's especially common in economics, and I think historians could benefit from engaging with counterfactuals more explicitly. Over the course of our talk, Scheidel pointed out that it's something historians actually do all the time, pretty much whenever they talk about causality, about why things happen, but rarely with an explicit and detailed method. I thought it would be an interesting exercise to put my money where my mouth is and give it a shot. You're going to follow along with me as we try. With that in mind, let's focus on one specific question. Was the Protestant Reformation inevitable? This matters. The Reformation was one of the central processes of the early modern period and a foundational piece of the world that follows. 
No Reformation, no Enlightenment, no Scientific Revolution. There might not have been a modern state system either. That grew out of the Thirty Years' War, which was itself deeply rooted in the conflicts of the Reformation that had begun a century before. The idea of a divide between church and state, a fundamental piece of modern liberalism, is yet another key Reformation development. The Reformation changed how people thought about charity and how people should behave as economic actors. It changed ideas about credit and interest, changed ideas about the role of women in the household and the world, and it did a lot more besides. The list goes on and on and on. The upshot is that a world without a Protestant Reformation would look very, very different. So did this have to happen? Was Christendom destined to splinter along sectional lines? Was it a given that a formerly universal church and the Pope would lose their institutional control and influence throughout Western Europe? The whole point of exploring counterfactuals is that they help us better understand what did actually happen. They force us to examine our assumptions about the relationship between deep structural forces and accidents of the moment. They help us clarify exactly how much influence individuals really wield. These are really big things. Thinking hard about them might even help us understand the present a little bit better. So how should we go about answering our basic, straightforward question? Well, first and foremost, we have to frame it. We need to define our terms and set the scope of our investigation. That starts with defining what the Reformation was. If we don't pin the thing down, we can't satisfactorily grapple with it. Now, a disclaimer. These definitions might not satisfy everybody. And the same can be said of the results or process of our investigation today. These are big, complicated questions. There can and should be different approaches to answering them. I'm going to give you my answers rooted in my own approach. And if this helps you think through your own answers, well, that's even better. Back to it. What exactly was the Reformation? Let's go with the simplest possible definition. The Reformation was the sequence of events and processes that began with the posting of Martin Luther's 95 Theses in October of 1517, which continued through Luther's split with the Church and then exploded outward into a more general and varied series of Reformations, plural. In addition to Luther and his many followers, there were the Swiss Reformers in Zurich, led by Huldrych Zwingli, the Calvinists in Geneva, led by John Calvin, the English Reformation of Henry VIII and his successors, the Counter-Reformation or Catholic Reformation embodied in the actions of the Council of Trent, and various stripes of radicals, including Anabaptists and so on. There were many more, those are just the main ones. Luther's solitary act of apparently insignificant protest quickly became a movement, and then a series of movements that slipped well beyond his, or anybody else's, grasp. By 1555 at the latest, when the Peace of Augsburg essentially set in stone the political and religious differences between Protestants and followers of the Church in Germany, there was no going back. What had begun with an Augustinian monk hammering a printed page with a call for debate on indulgences to a church door in unimportant Wittenberg had forever splintered the unity of Western Christendom. In one sense, this makes the framing easy. There's no real question that the Reformation, as we understand it, began with Luther and his 95 Theses and then grew from there. There were antecedents and structural things underlying that sequence, but we have a pretty clearly defined beginning. We know where it started. It's simpler to answer than, say, the Hundred Years' War. 
So with that done, the next thing we have to address is whether the universal church was in some kind of terminal decline on the eve of Luther's protest in 1517. Was it teetering on the edge and it simply took a little push to shove it over the edge? We can pretty firmly say that the answer to that question is no. The church was everywhere in 1517, a vast, sprawling series of institutions and networks that lay at the very heart of Western European life. The Pope ruled a territorial state in Italy like a Renaissance prince. He sent out armies and he meddled in the politics of the peninsula like any other ruler. But on top of that, he was the head of an international organization with tendrils everywhere. Money flowed into Rome from all over the place, everywhere from Sweden and Ireland to southern Spain. And in theory, everybody from the lowliest friar and parish priest up to the College of Cardinals reported to him. Now, in practice, it was a little different, which we'll discuss momentarily. By 1517, the papacy had taken some serious hits to its prestige and its capabilities over the past couple of centuries. The popular image of an all-powerful medieval pope dates to the high Middle Ages. Those days were long gone. The pope wasn't making reasonable claims to ultimate overlordship or bringing kings and emperors to heel as he had in the 12th and 13th centuries. A few different things had happened. First, the Pope had been driven from Rome for much of the 14th century, setting up shop in Avignon in southern France. The papacy stayed rich and powerful, but it lost some of its legitimacy when it was no longer located in its spiritual and physical home. Much more serious than the Avignon papacy were the upheavals of the Great Schism. There were first two, and then three people claiming to be Pope for nearly 40 years, from 1378 to 1417. Any claims to universal power and authority looked ridiculous when there was more than one viable claimant to the papal tiara. In the absence of centralizing papal power, the conciliar movement popped up, trying to return ultimate authority over the church to regular councils of bishops and other key stakeholders. The popes eventually clawed back control of Rome itself, along with control over the church, but they never again approached the kind of unquestioned supremacy they'd enjoyed in times past. More important, the power vacuum of the Great Schism also gave kings an opening to grab more jurisdiction over the church within their kingdoms. A big cut of church revenues increasingly flowed into royal coffers, kings increasingly appointed bishops, and they kept watch over reform movements and matters of internal discipline. We can talk about national churches in the 15th and early 16th centuries, with kings and princes exercising more and more control over the church within their increasingly defined areas of control. This is part and parcel of the rise of the late medieval state, which we've talked about many times here on Tides. Now, as I said, this wasn't terminal. Papal power had waxed and waned many times, and this was simply a different phase in its development. As much as there were calls for new councils to settle pressing matters, nobody really questioned that the Pope was the head of the church. Lots of money still flowed to Rome. Papal pronouncements and decisions were taken seriously. Were there complaints about everything from the very real corruption and nepotism to the personal failings of the popes themselves? Absolutely, but they were nowhere near the fever pitch of the Great Schism and its aftermath. More importantly, we shouldn't confuse the papacy Pope and his bureaucracy and his court for the church as a whole. It was a vast, sprawling, overlapping series of organizations and institutions. There were run-down ramshackle monasteries out in the countryside with just a few monks or nuns struggling to patch the holes in the roof and hang on to a religious life. 
There were sparkling brand new cathedrals, home to powerful bishops who ran their dioceses like fiefdoms that dominated city skylines. There were illiterate parish priests with secret wives and a brood of children hated and mocked by their parishioners who couldn't even read the Bible in Latin. There were charismatic wandering friars preaching about the path to a righteous and godly life, drawing huge crowds on feast days. There were academics teaching precise, fine-grained theology to university students. Regional differences could be substantial. The church in Spain had undergone something of a miniature reformation of its own under the leadership of Ferdinand and Isabella toward the end of the 15th century. In Italy, the pope exercised direct control over a lot of appointments. Everywhere, local and regional saints and festivals dominated religious life. Styles of devotion could vary a great deal. More mystical leanings in one place, better educated priests in another, more emphasis on literacy and private devotion in still another. The upshot of all this was that the church encompassed an incredible amount of diversity. It was not a monolith. The church had to be a big tent because it was the only game in town, and nobody really imagined an alternative. It was the focus for an incredible amount of popular religious enthusiasm and devotion, in addition to its institutional aspects. Now, with all of that said, there were ongoing calls for reform and renewal on the eve of Luther's protest against indulgences. This was nothing new. The history of the medieval church is best understood as the history of a series of reform movements, from the Carolingians to the rise of the papacy in the 11th century, to the emergence of the Franciscans, to the Fourth Lateran Council, to, finally, the conciliar movement. When people like Erasmus of Rotterdam, the most famous humanist and popular writer of the period, called for reform of the church's abuses and shortcomings, they were speaking to an audience that both knew and cared about the topic of reform. Parishioners complained about the inadequacy of their priests. Italian princes and city-states disliked the papacy's regional ambitions. Kings wanted more of the revenue that flowed to Rome. On every level, there was some measure of dissatisfaction with various aspects of the church. The question we began with was whether this amounted to terminal decline for the church as a whole. Were people losing interest in the spiritual life, the various branches and tendrils of the church offered to the devout? Very much the opposite. Sermons were popular and festive social events. The printed texts of those sermons were some of the best-selling items rolling off the new printing presses. Were popes, bishops, and the church hierarchy corrupt? Sure, in certain ways, but that was nothing new and neither was anger surrounding it. There was no reason to think the church was teetering on the brink. If anything, we might argue that the relative security and deep-rootedness of the church was part of why its authorities didn't take the challenge Luther and the other reformers were offering seriously enough. By the time they figured out what a threat it really posed, it was too late. There were certainly going to be reform movements, maybe powerful ones with enough backing from both laypeople and clerics to effect some real change. But the key thing is that those reform movements, and Luther's too, for that matter, were attempting to reform the church, not break it up. That was the truly unexpected part of the Protestant Reformation. What we can conclude here by way of introduction is that there were some structural tensions within the church. There was a propensity for and an undercurrent of desire for reform, but there is no reason to think that a regional split had to be in the offing. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! 
And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. All of this brings us to an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther. You might have heard of him at some point. He's pretty famous. So if we accept that the church wasn't on the verge of breaking up in 1517, can we just lay everything that happened subsequently at Martin Luther's feet? Did these surprisingly capable monks single-handedly split the church into pieces like some particularly destructive lumberjack? This is what's known as great man history where epic figures change the course of history by the force of their talent and personality. It's more or less how history has traditionally been taught in primary and secondary schools, and it's often how history is presented to the public. Great man history has the appeal of being really easy to turn into a memorable story, complete with heroes and villains, rising action, and a climax. But at best, this is a massive oversimplification and distortion of complex interactions. At worst, it's actively damaging and just plain wrong. It is a terrible approach if we're trying to understand causality as we are here. Now, that doesn't mean that individuals don't matter or that there's no such thing as a key figure. The challenge is unpicking the precise nature of the relationship between individual agency and the deeper structural trends. Even as he was hammering the 95 Theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, the canonical opening event of the Reformation, Luther wasn't off on his own. His views and critiques hadn't arisen from a blank slate of perfect theological insight. In deep and profound ways, Luther was a man of his times, the product of a very particular set of late medieval worlds. Drawing on existing critiques and theological trends, Luther fashioned something new and compelling that spoke to his contemporaries in ways that were simultaneously familiar and radically refreshing. Whatever his specific, individual contributions, we have to grasp that Brother Martin was telling well-prepared ground. This is a way of getting at a fundamental question. Did it have to be Martin Luther who launched the Reformation? Can we insert someone else into his role and imagine events proceeding more or less as they did? Or were Luther's particular views, talents, and foibles essential to producing the outcome of fracture within the church that we eventually got? To satisfactorily answer that, we're going to have to understand some things about Martin Luther. He's a fascinating figure, mercurial, intense, angry, depressed, gifted, intelligent, obstinate human being. Being close to Luther was a maddening experience. He drew people in with his charisma and force of personality and often drove them away with his demands for conformity to his views. He could be incredibly warm-hearted and caring, but also impossibly vindictive toward anybody who got on his bad side. His work ethic and output were simply incredible. Text after text after text of all sorts, from thoughtful sermons to vicious polemic to Bible translations to technical theological interpretation, all of that flowed from his pen. On top of that, he was a prolific letter writer. He didn't travel much himself. In fact, he lived practically all his life in a small corner of eastern Germany, but his correspondence went all over the place. Luther understood how to use letters to build relationships, networks, and a community of like-minded people that stretched well beyond his home in Wittenberg. 
When you look at one of Luther's many portraits now, a couple of things stand out. The first is the eyes. They're incredibly intense, whether we're talking about one of the early depictions of Luther as a youthful monk or the rotund, comfortable reformer late in life. You can imagine those eyes sparkling with laughter. Luther was a funny guy when he wanted to be. Or absolutely skewering anybody unfortunate enough to incur his substantial wrath. There's a kind of a set to his mouth. It's expressive, and we can see the ways it might twist into a snarl, harden down into a clenched jaw, or curl into a bemused smile. All of this speaks to some serious charisma. Nobody who spent any time reading Luther's writings or what people had to say about the man himself has any real doubts about that. Talent, work ethic, a stunning disregard for personal consequences, and, at least from the outside, unshakable belief in himself and his mission, all combined to make Luther the driving force behind the early Reformation. This brings us back to our big question. Did it have to be Luther who launched the Reformation? Could we slot in another person and imagine that reformer creating the kind and type of impact that Luther did? I welcome disagreements with this, but I really don't believe you could just replace Luther with another comparable reformer and get precisely the same result. Huldrych Zwingli in Zurich, for example, wasn't on Luther's level as a writer, and he was nowhere near as productive. Erasmus was an incredibly talented and skilled writer and prolific, and he'd been pushing reform for years but he didn't share Luther's fundamental lack of concern for consequences. What about somebody totally unknown? Sure, harder to disprove, but I don't think so. Luther's peculiar concerns, his talents, and the way he fit into the local and regional context were all central to the path the Reformation ended up taking. Now, this isn't the same thing as reverting to great man history, where we just assign Luther all, or even most, of the agency in creating the Reformation. The key is understanding how Luther's distinctive and important personal qualities interacted with both the broader structural factors at play and the contingencies of the moment. What we get is an exceptionally combustible mixture of things. We have the deep, ongoing desire for reform within the church and the long-term move toward more royal and princely control over the church, coupled with the increasingly Italian focus of the papacy. Those are the structural underpinnings. Next, there were the things happening between especially 1517 and 1521 that had not been present before and wouldn't be present again afterward. These were the contingent pieces of the puzzle. They weren't quite accidents, but they were specific to the moment. We can point to a few different aspects here. It is essential to bear in mind the political situation in Saxony in particular and the Holy Roman Empire more broadly, as well as the precise timing of when Luther's complaints were aired. The Holy Roman Empire was much more decentralized than the other major political units in Europe at the time. It was an elective monarchy, and the electors who held those votes wielded tremendous power. As luck would have it, Wittenberg was home to the elector of Saxony, a guy named Frederick. The University of Wittenberg, the institution where Luther taught, was Frederick's pet project. Frederick's influence was essential to protecting Luther at the moments of greatest danger in his confrontation with the Pope and the Emperor. If the elector had been less dedicated to protecting his subject, an instructor at his university, Luther might have ended up burned at the stake before he could do much of anything. Moreover, as luck would have it, the Luther controversy took place at the moment when Frederick had maximum leverage with the new Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. First, Charles needed Frederick's vote. 
Second, he needed Frederick's support to actively rule, since Charles wasn't really known in Germany and had spent his entire life elsewhere. Third, Charles was busy fighting wars with France over control of Italy, which meant that the attention he could give to the Luther question was initially limited. By the time he did pay attention, it was basically too late. Luther was already the most widely read author in Europe, and his message had spread far and wide. After Luther was finally condemned at the Diet of Worms in 1521, Frederick spirited him off to safety at Wartburg Castle. Charles V could not risk offending one of his most powerful subjects by going after Luther under any of those circumstances. The Pope was likewise occupied with the ongoing conflicts between European rulers and with the manifest problems of the church writ large, exacerbated by Luther and his message. All of this created a narrow passageway for Luther to operate, a tiny sliver of safe ground amid the ongoing chaos of European political and religious life. In this little sliver of safe ground, the reformer could avoid the heretic's usual fate of forced recanting and burning at the stake. Luther, more by luck and the actions of others than his own design, managed to stay in that protected corridor for just long enough to get the word out. One final factor plays into the why Luther, why the Reformation conversation. It's the printing press. The argument has been made, correctly to my mind, that there could not have been a Reformation without the printing press. Huge amounts of material rolled off the presses of Germany and beyond in the years after 1517, enough to flood Europe with a tidal wave of books, pamphlets, broadsheets, sermons, and assorted other material. Now, the vast majority of that material came from Luther, his supporters, and other reformers, not the church and its allies. By orders of magnitude, the reformers simply swamped their competition with the volume of their contributions to printed discourse. Now, you might say most people couldn't read. You'd be right about that. So is the written word really the best way of understanding the spread of reforming ideas? Well, even if people were illiterate, that doesn't mean they didn't have access to the written word. The literate could read written works aloud to those who couldn't read, and influential people, especially preachers, could read the text and then disseminate their message to the masses via sermons. Now, they weren't necessarily getting the direct, unfiltered message of the reformers through that medium, but they were still getting some aspect of it. In this sense, sermons were probably the most important means of getting the reforming spirit out there. But we need to take a moment to unpack the exact relationship between printing, reform, and Luther. Something nobody could have foreseen, probably not even Luther himself, was that the academic theologian and preacher would turn out to be an incredibly gifted and flexible writer. The 95 Theses were at their heart a dense and academic text, but they still had a little bit of flair to them. They struck a chord with some readers, but they were initially in Latin and weren't exactly a banger of a read even when translated into German. But Luther's talents went far beyond technical theology in Latin. He had a beautiful way of writing in vernacular German. He expressed himself clearly and forcefully in ways that translated perfectly to mass-produced texts, especially pamphlets. Polemic, often vicious and nasty, proved to be another strength of Luther's writing. When faced with a challenge to his approach or his theology, Luther could sit down with a pen, compose something witty, powerful, and appealing, and the presses would immediately run off thousands and thousands and thousands of copies. Put simply, as the author Andrew Pedigree, a recent Tides guest, has argued at length, Luther understood print. He grasped the medium, he understood its possibilities and shortcomings, and he understood, most of all, how his work would come across to readers. 
you know, there are people who are good at Twitter. There are people who are good at writing beautiful thousand-word op-ed columns. There are people who really understand how to get across a person's personality in a profile piece. There are people who are great at writing novels or screenplays or TV series. Luther, as it turned out, was good at print as a whole. And then he mastered multiple media within print, everything from pamphlets to long-form books to Bible translations. When we talk about what made Luther indispensable to the Reformation, this, to my way of thinking, is the key piece. It wasn't so much his thought and his theology, although that was distinctive and appealing and it certainly spoke to contemporaries in deep and profound ways. It wasn't even his personal networks, which he assiduously cultivated and which absolutely helped to spread the Reformation. My sincere thanks to Jared Rubin, a Tides of History listener and a recent guest, for showing me a paper of his and his colleagues that quantified just how central Luther personally was to that process. It wasn't even Luther's personal courage and recklessness which helped him through some conundrums and conflicts that would have crushed less forceful personalities. The key thing was that Luther was an incredibly gifted communicator who had a savant's understanding of a major new medium of communication. Luther saved the printing industry, and printing made Luther, not just the Reformation as a whole. If we want to understand how and why the Reformation played out the way it did, then we have to grasp that special connection between Luther himself and the medium. It's easy to posit that printing made the Reformation inevitable. It was only a matter of time, this line of thinking goes, before somebody put out a message that the church couldn't suppress outright or disincentivize with heresy trials and a few educational burnings at the stake. When that happened, a split in Christendom was bound to follow. I do not find that convincing because it elides a few key facts. The church was among the earliest adopters of the printing press. Religious and devotional literature dwarfed the fancy humanist and classical texts in their readership. Monasteries loved printing presses. So did bishops looking to run off a few thousand copies of indulgences for sale. One of the great ironies of all this is that the printing press helped create the indulgence controversy, and it helped to create the Reformation that addressed it. Printed sermons of impeccable orthodoxy were incredibly popular in the 1500s and 1510s, leading up to Luther in 1517. There was clearly a market for religious literature of all kinds, not just the transgressive stuff Luther and his associates were pumping out. In short, there was no deep, fundamental reason why the institutional church was destined to lose the battle of printing to the reformers over the long term. In fact, after the 1520s, the gap in output between reformers and defenders of the traditional church narrowed dramatically. The key was those first few years, especially between 1520 and 1525, when the reformers just swamped them. And this brings us back around to the question of inevitability. Much of the Reformation happened largely by chance because of a combination of particular factors in a particular place at a particular time with a particular individual. Luther's message happened to strike a chord at that specific moment, and Luther himself offered specific talents, strengths, and foibles that wound themselves into the path of his nascent reforming movement. By 1525, the ball was rolling, not just with Luther, but also more broadly. There were radicals throughout Germany who went even further than the Wittenberg theologian. The Peasants' War, driven largely by the evangelical message within Germany, was underway. Luther had found supporters among the princes and the nobility, giving him institutional support. And new generations of reformers across the continent had drawn inspiration from Luther and his message. By 1530, at the very latest, when the reformers drafted the Augsburg Confession as a statement of Lutheran faith, and Henry VIII was well into contemplating an English split from Rome, the tide couldn't be stopped. Christendom was splintering, now and forever. 
It had taken less than 15 years. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. The Reformation was a failure. That's the baseline fact we have to understand if we want to make sense of it. Luther and his compatriots were not trying to split off and create a new sect, particularly at the very beginning. They were trying to reform the institutional church. Then, as the reformers got a bit more radical, they were trying to remake the community of believers more completely. In their reading of scripture, they saw a more perfect vision of how the church should be, and they wanted to bring that into existence. The intention was never to create warring, competing interpretations of Christianity that got institutionalized through the actions of political authorities, the practice historians call confessionalization. That's not just my opinion. The idea of failure belongs to a broad swath of recent scholars on the Reformation, and Luther himself, who saw failure everywhere, all around him. That didn't stop him or his compatriots from trying. When we ask whether the Reformation was inevitable, We're not asking whether church reform was inevitable. If the history of medieval Christianity is anything to go by, and I think it is, then there was always going to be another round of more or less successful reform. Striving toward a more Christianized world was part of the bedrock of medieval Christian society. One recent book by Eric Sock called Luther and the Reformation of the Later Middle Ages argued, for example, that Luther's Reformation followed and was in fact an outgrowth of a late medieval Reformation following in the footsteps of the Great Schism and the Conciliar Movement. That seems pretty convincing to me. To be a dedicated medieval Christian was to strive toward a better church and a better spiritual life. What we're really asking is whether that next wave of reform, marinated in the charged political atmosphere of the 16th century and driven by the printing press, had to split Christendom into a bunch of different sects. For the rest of this episode, we're going to try to do some thought experiments to suss out some alternative pathways. This is the hardest part of doing counterfactuals, coming up with viable, realistic ways in which events could have gone differently, proceeding from the same structural foundations. Let's lay out a few examples. The first is one we already touched on. What if Luther had never existed or never become a major reformer? Maybe that bolt of lightning that frightened him into becoming a monk in 1505 never struck, and Luther went off and became a lawyer instead, just as he and his father had planned. Maybe Luther catches the plague in Wittenberg as a young theologian and dies before he can write the 95 Theses. What happens then? There was always going to be a movement or series of movements calling for reform within the church. Everything from abuses of power and corruption within the hierarchy to the failings of the clerical estate was open to criticism, as it had been for a while. In Spain, the Catholic monarchs had taken the lead in reforming the church within their lands. This points to one possible path. 
There was no particular reason why that couldn't have happened in France, England, or elsewhere under royal direction, complete with their own state-sponsored inquisitions to maintain control. In this formulation, maybe the trend toward more national churches would have continued, with the Pope's authority growing ever more nominal. But that wouldn't necessarily have amounted to a split within Christendom, just hard limits to papal authority and prestige under his maybe fictitious Europe-wide leadership. On the other hand, without Luther, maybe someone like Erasmus would have looked a lot more appealing as the leading international voice for reform. After all, Erasmus voiced many of the same critiques as Luther, but in a manner far less disruptive to the established order. Even Erasmus wasn't without his enemies inside the church, though. Maybe church authorities simply would have rejected him and other similar reformers without a second thought. We'll come back to Erasmus a little later. Maybe we should look toward the more radical options as alternative leaders of a hypothetical reform movement. Could we see Holdrich Zwingli of Zurich, founder of the Swiss reform tradition, as a viable option? Maybe, but Zwingli's path was deeply bound up with local conditions in Zurich and rested on his skill as a preacher, rather than being mediated through mass media. What about Andreas Karlstadt, an associate of Luther's and a major reformer in his own right, with a more mystically inclined Thomas Munzer? Both of them came up in the same milieu as Luther, but lacked his facility with printing. Their paths, including people like Calvin and John Knox and the next generation of reformers, were not really imaginable without Luther's example and his work in creating a market for printed reform materials. As we talked about a little while ago, understanding printing is essential to understanding the spread and popularity of reforming ideas. The printing industry was inherently uncertain. Most printers eventually went under, and the biggest reason was that estimating the demand for a printed product was tough and upfront costs were high. The Reformation saved printing because it proved that there was a ready market if the right products could be found, and the reforming writers, especially Luther, provided the right products. People preferred pamphlets over books. Short, punchy, often illustrated texts just a few pages long. Their message was usually easy to understand, often inflammatory, and sometimes genuinely entertaining. Pamphlets were cheap to produce and cheap to buy. They sold by the tens and hundreds of thousands, between 1520 and 1525 especially. They were almost entirely written in the vernacular, especially in German, which helps us to make sense of the regional and national character of the Reformation. Pamphlets were local or regional products, even if they might spread further and get reprinted elsewhere. But the key thing is this. As Luther was trudging toward the castle church in Wittenberg to post his 95 theses in October of 1517, nobody really knew this market existed. This is essential to understand as far as the question of inevitability and counterfactuals are concerned. It's not like the printers knew that readers were going to eat up polemical pamphlets with topics like how the Pope was Antichrist, or precisely what happened to the bread and wine during Mass, or how the path to God lay through direct mystical experience. First Luther specifically, and then the milieu of reformers around him, and only later did the other reforming voices prove that the demand was there for this kind of material. Once they did, by 1525 at the latest, the floodgates opened, the chorus of reform voices grew, and the point of no return flew into the rearview mirror. The broader point is simple. Not just that the Reformation as we understand it wasn't destined to happen, but that the discovery of the existence of a German vernacular reading public with an insatiable interest in polemical, controversial religious literature, that that didn't have to happen either. It's not so much that the early Reformation tapped into this existing vernacular reading public as that it actively created 
that market. The constant stream of printed materials that followed the initial burst of interest helped draw more and more readers into both the topic of religious reform and the market for print that discussed it. The early Reformation was fundamentally German, spread by German-language works, and furthered by German princes within the Holy Roman Empire. One of Luther's most famous early works was entitled An den Christlichen Adel Deutscher Nation, To the Christian Nobility of the German Nation. Luther's Latin work spread far and wide, of course, and reform wasn't a strictly German phenomenon, but this popular vernacular element was a real part of what ensured the church's split. In other words, exactly the question we're asking about inevitability, not of reform itself, but splintering. Let's try to imagine an alternative, plausible reform movement, one led by Erasmus or another hyperliterate, print-savvy popular author. Erasmus, after all, was the most popular contemporary author of his day prior to Luther. He was himself extremely concerned with church reform. That kind of reform movement would have been purely Latin rather than vernacular, international rather than local or regional, and probably aimed more at church institutions than the day-to-day spiritual life of the Christian soul that so concerned Luther. It would have been capital R reform, maybe successful and far-reaching reform of the kind that periodically remade the medieval church. But it would have been a much different kind of reform. Luther's brand of reform activated an enormous German reading and listening public through the medium of the printed word. This was what prevented his movement, which was based so firmly in Wittenberg, from remaining a purely local or even a regional phenomenon like the English Lollards or the Bohemian Hussites of the previous century. But Luther had equal facility with Latin, and so his ideas exercised real influence well beyond Germany, even if the Reformation abroad took on different leaders and a different character. The Luther-centric Reformation, to some extent, got the best of both worlds, regional and national rooting and some international appeal. Once the ideas were floating out there, it didn't take long for their implications to explode. Other reformers took their theological ideas and the idea of biblical primacy, the idea that everything should be drawn directly from Scripture, much further than Luther ever did. Mystics preached about direct access to God in ways that went far beyond medieval mysticism. The church couldn't contain the multitudes of reforming sentiments that cropped up. The political reverberations were staggering. If the pope was fallible, as Luther argued, if kings weren't bound to subordinate themselves to him, if a ruler should be able to choose the religion of his principality or kingdom, a principle called cuius religio eus religio, then all bets were off. Henry VIII of England wasn't a Lutheran or even much of a Luther sympathizer, but that principle served him pretty dang well. Maybe Henry and his associates, guys like Thomas Cromwell and Thomas Cranmer, would have gotten there without Luther. Maybe other kings simply would have seized more regional authority from a sclerotic and Italy-focused papacy. It's possible, but I kind of doubt it in the absence of a surging Europe-wide reform movement that was awash in ideas like this. We can be more precise here particularly about how quickly it happened. Luther posted the 95 Theses in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517, and sent his letter and a copy of the text to Bishop Albrecht of Mainz the same day. The text was translated into German, reprinted, and spread widely in both its Latin and German versions in the first few months of 1518. Luther followed with his Sermon on Indulgences and Grace in April 1518, another best-selling pamphlet. Luther defended himself against accusations of heresy in October 1518, and he was quiet for much of 1519, but then in 1520 he published three key works, To the Christian Nobility of the German Nation, On the Babylonian Captivity of the Church, and On the Freedom of a Christian. All of these spread widely. 
These three texts are what got Luther excommunicated and led to his split with the papacy. All of these tracts were widely reprinted and consumed by readers. By 1521, when Luther was outlawed at the Diet of Worms and escaped to the Wartburg Castle, I think it was already too late. Even if Luther had been publicly tortured and executed in the aftermath, even if his career had ended exactly like Jan Hus's had a century before, those few years, 1517 to 1521, had already drastically changed things. Printers were already more open to pushing reforming literature because they knew the market existed. The ideas were out there. If another Luther wasn't necessarily imaginable before 1517, he certainly would have been after 1521. As it happened, Luther's output dominated the presses for another few years until 1525, but that looks to me like a legacy effect of his role as the first major reformer rather than fundamentally being about his superior appeal after that point. After 1525, as Luther's attention shifted and the landscape of reform moved around him, other reformers got their day on the printed page as well. So, to sum up, here's my answer to the question we started with. Was the Reformation inevitable? To my mind, the splitting of Christendom was not inevitable prior to 1517. If anything, it was unlikely. But the precise circumstances between 1517 and 1530, especially that first few years from 1517 to 1521, provided a perfect storm of circumstances. Those conditions put Luther specifically in the right place at the right time to kick off the Reformation. He had the unique skills to push a relatively new technology in a previously unforeseen direction, spreading his reform message far and wide before anybody realized how enormous the implications really were. By the time the genie was out of the bottle, those specific contingent conditions of 1517 to 1521 had shifted the structural circumstances beneath everybody's feet. There was no going back. By 1530 at the very latest, probably 1525, maybe even 1521, a split had become drastically more likely, if not inevitable. As I mentioned, the Augsburg Confession of 1530 was the fundamental statement of Lutheran faith. It marked the end of this first era of reform, not just the beginning of a new age. By that point, Henry VIII of England was already exploring divorce and a split from Rome. Zwingli's Swiss reform was well underway. The radicals of all stripes, including Anabaptists and mystics, had popped up and started to spread in unpredictable ways. John Calvin experienced his break from Rome in that same year, 1530. This set him on the path toward becoming the key reformer of the second generation. The Reformation as we understand it, a split in Christendom, was at first unthinkable, then unlikely, and then very quickly became inevitable, or something close to it. Martin Luther was essential to that early process, but not as a great man moving history forward single-handedly. His particular talents intersected with political circumstances beyond his control, the available technology of printing, and the business environment and market within which printers operated. Things would have been very different without Luther, or if his burst of reforming energy had come a few years before or after. That interplay between the structural and the contingent is the key to understanding why big things happen how causality works. I hope this has been an illuminating experiment, and I welcome your thoughts on either the process or the conclusions I reached. Next time on Tides of History, we'll be going in the exact opposite direction from this discussion of counterfactuals. We're going to follow the life story of a composite character, a peasant woman living in late medieval England. Until then, thanks so much for joining me. 
Be sure and hit me up if you'd like to chat about anything we've talked about on Times or about something you'd like to see. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman or on Facebook at Patrick Wyman MMA. You can follow the show at Tides History. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to Tides of History on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this right now. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star rating and a review. Tides of History is written and narrated by me, Patrick Wyman. The sound design is by Derek Behrens for Airship. The sound engineer is Sergio Enriquez. Tides of History is produced by Morgan Jaffe and Leah Sutherland. From Wondery, the executive producer is Hernan Lopez. Thanks for listening. Until next time, from Wondery, this has been Tides of History. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura, no murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us in Pura. Promised to keep you safe. I killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pure. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.